Good morning. It's good to see you. Um, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Acts, um, the second chapter. We're going to start in verse 42. Um, before we get started, uh, we have some deconstructing to do to be able to have this conversation that Acts 2 is going to force us to have. And the deconstructing that I'm referring to um, is revolving around the idea that comes into your head when I say this one word, church. So when I say the word church, do, do we want to play? Do we want to play a game? What comes into your mind? Do you just want to throw it out there? Anyone, does anyone want to do that? I don't know. The building, yeah, that's great. That's a good point. Yeah, exactly, sure, good, good. Uh, pulpits, maybe pastors with nasally tones, out-of-tune worship leaders. No one? Oh, that's just my little cynical heart coming out. Yeah, pipe organ, there you go. Um, when I say church today, the last thing I am referring to is a one-hour service on a Sunday morning. Amen. The last thing I'm referring to when I say the word church is what we're doing right now. I'm referring, this is gonna give you a definition of what I'm talking about, because if you don't get this now, you're gonna be real offended later, okay? So you need, to, you need to get this. What I'm talking about when I say the word church, I'm referring to relationships formed around the power and beauty of Jesus, okay? So when I say the word church, you should not think of what we're doing right now for this conversation. You should think about relationships that you enjoy that are tethered to, formed on a conviction that both of you have, which is that Jesus is both powerful and beautiful. Okay, so if you're streaming, I'm happy that you're with us. We, like we, Ben said, we're massively improving the, the quality of that. I'm excited about that. I'm glad you're able to participate in this way. But it needs to be said, virtual church. Now, when I say the word church, what I'm meaning, okay, is a shadow of what God intends the church to be in our hearts and lives. Now, I'm not talking about a Sunday morning. I'm talking about relationships that are empowered and tethered to the conviction that Jesus is both powerful and beautiful. So social distancing considered, I hope and pray that you are fighting the fight in this season to maintain relationships that are tethered to the power and beauty of Jesus. Are we tracking? Okay, so we're thankful for what we can do here, social distancing necessary. I hope you're fighting for authentic connection. So today we're picking up um, in the book of Acts in the aftermath of Pentecost, okay? Uh, this, this, what we just read last week would go on to be known as the birth of the church, right? Let me just say real quick, we are spending much more time at the beginning of Acts because it's essential to understand uh, those first couple chapters are going to frame the entirety of the book. After we get past this bit, we're going to pick up the pace a good bit because if not, we'd be in the book of Acts for like a year. So um, Acts chapter 2, we're starting in 42, we're going to go to the beginning of 3. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship 
and to the breaking of bread and prayer. And awe came on every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Chapter three. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man going to the temple and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. So he's a poor man, a beggar, a lame man who's been brought to this gate for uh, quite many years, I think 40, I think, right? And And he's um, at the gate. So seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, and as did John, and said, look at us. That's where I get when I'm saying, look at me. (laughs) And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come? God, would you rest on us? Lord, would you speak the peace of God to our hearts wherever we may be right now? Um, Physically, wherever we are, geographically, if we're in this room or at our dining room table or in our living room, Lord, relationally with you wherever we're at, whether we're far away or near, whether we're running from you or running towards you, Holy Spirit, speak your peace to us, God. We need it now. Father, I pray for all those who feel alienated in this season. God, I pray for every heart that is suffering from an acute sense of loneliness right now. And I pray that today we would sense, Lord, we would feel a sense of belonging um, with the church in history and today, God, that you would speak life, not only into our own hearts, but to our relationships as well. Jesus' name, come. We love you. Amen. So at Pentecost... Those who followed Jesus went from about 100 to 3,000 one day. All right, so that's like bonkers growth, okay? So like, if you're thinking about like church growth, you think, man, that'd be awesome, but would it though? Like my little organizational mind would be tweaking out. 3,000 people showed up here the next day, right? Like the questions I'm asking, like who's gonna watch our kids, right? Who's gonna, I mean, massive growth, like earth-shaking growth. At that point, if 3,000 people came in this room or, you know, out the door, I'd be like, we're done. We're done. Like, we've arrived as a church. And yet, what we'll see is this is only the beginning of the birth of the church in Jerusalem, right? 
Today, we're going to get a glimpse at how the Christian church would function, what the framework would be, the guiding fundamentals, right, of what it means to be counted among the Christians, right? So what we are to have in our minds as we think of the early church should be formed by what we're about to read, right? And therefore, what we have in our minds when we think of how we experience church today should be informed by what we're about to talk about, right? We're going to get a vignette, a little picture today of what God had in mind when he brought the church together, the kind of community, the kind of people that were to compose this group of people that say they follow Jesus. What are they supposed to be like? What are they supposed to look like? What are they supposed to talk like, right? We're gonna get a picture of that today, right? And as you look, I want you to hold next to this vignette that we're gonna get, next to this little picture that we're gonna get of what the church maybe should be, I want you to hold next to this your experience of the church. That's what we're supposed to do when we come to scripture, we're supposed to hold it up to then our experience and say, there's a, I mean, maybe there's not a difference for you, <laughs> but for me, when I do things like this, exercises like this, there's some contrast. And there's going to be areas that we're going to talk about today that you're going to say yes and amen. I've experienced that. I've been encouraged in that way. And the church is functioning like that for me and mm, proud to be a part, right? There's going to be other parts that you say, no, <laughs> I haven't seen that. No, that's new for me. And in those places, I want you to be open to the idea that God may have more in store for you when it comes to your engagement with the body of believers. Can we do that? No one. Awesome. Great. Cool. I'll just be up here by myself talking to myself. Okay. So the community can't hear you online. Okay. Um, the early church, the early community that we read is going to have four, I mean, I, I, there's tons more, but I'm picking out four distinguishers today that we're going to sit with. Okay, here they are. You type A's, here you go, four points. Strong commitment, what they called devotion to scripture and to each other. One of the first distinguishers. Number two, glad-hearted generosity. Number three, a sense of God's active living presence among them via the supernatural, number four, all of it saturated with the praise of God. We're gonna spend most of our, all of our time on the first three, okay? So first, what we notice when we read Acts and we see the description of the early church is a fierce loyalty, devotion, that's what the word was, to scripture and to each other. It's one of the first distinguishers we see. So if you look at the sermons of the early church, what you, are, what you will find is that they are, so in the book of Acts, there's lots of sermons. We're gonna get some of those, we're gonna sit with some of those later. What you're gonna find is they are chalked full of Old Testament scripture. Sometimes every word almost is a quote or a reference to an Old Testament scripture. They are clarifying, so oh, I'm sorry, we need to clarify that when they say scripture here, they are not referring to the New Testament. Hadn't been written yet, okay? In this chronological order, when this is happening, New Testament's not written. When they say scripture, they are referring solely to the Old Testament, okay? These people uh, were going, like we noticed, to the Jewish temple every day. They were still Jews, y'all. All this that was happening, Jesus dying, Jesus rising from the dead, the Holy Spirit coming, all of this was under the umbrella or the fulfillment of being a Jew. They weren't Christians yet. That word wouldn't come into play till later in the 
uh, city of Antioch. First time outsiders would say, you guys look like little Jesuses. We won't call you Christians, right? Right now, they're just Jews going to temple every day, believing that the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies was happening in the person of Jesus. They were just G- Jews that followed now the next stage in what God was doing in the universe in their imaginations, right? So firmly fixed, deeply established in the Jewish imagination, early Hebrew imagination was promises and prophecies of a Messiah, right? That would come and restore the kingdom to Israel, right? He would unite the tribes. He would bring peace. He would sit on David's throne. He would rule with justice and righteousness. He'd be born of a virgin. They'd call him Emmanuel, Isaiah 7, 14. He'd be of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, 10. He'd be mocked and ridiculed and his hands and his feet would be pierced, Psalms 22. He'd be rejected by his own people, Isaiah 53. And on and on and on and on and on we could go. The Old Testament saturated with these glimpses of the Messiah that would come and restore the kingdom to Israel. That's why the apostles, when he rose from the dead, say, are you going to do it now? Because they were saying, you got to be the guy. You're the guy that all the Old Testament's talking about, so you're going to do it now, right? So firmly fixed in their minds was this promise. And so y'all, today, Jewish people are still waiting for the Messiah to come. They're still waiting. Jesus wasn't the guy for them. So they're still waiting on all these prophecies that were given years and years. years. In fact, you're going to be hard pressed to find an Old Testament prophet that doesn't have some reference or clue to the coming of the Messiah. It's just chalked full in the Old Testament, right? He'd be from Galilee or he'd be a king or that he'd be betrayed. It's all there. It's all promised. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came, there's all of these indicators, all of it pointing to who Jesus is, right? So Today, they're still waiting for uh, the Messiah. So, in fact, Jesus would read one of these Old Testament prophecies when he began his ministry. If you remember this, he comes to the temple, opens the scroll of what? Isaiah, and says, the spirit of the Lord's upon me, preach freedom to the prisoners, right? Sight to the blind, release for those in darkness, to mend the brokenhearted, closes the book and says, today this is happening. Then, whenever the apostles go and preach, guess what they're doing? They're preaching like their leader. They're doing the same thing Jesus did. They're bringing up Old Testament prophecies and promises, and they're saying, today, this is happening. It's exactly what Peter did last week. It's what we saw when the Holy Spirit came. He quoted Joel 2, and he says, it's talking about now. So here's another example for you. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth, Isaiah is written, what, like 700 years before Christ, something like that? I could be wrong on that. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness around his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf with the lion, the fattened calf together. And the little child shall lead them. This picture, it's the most poetic, beautiful pictures you're ever gonna get in in anywhere, right? A lion and a lamb, a leopard and a goat being led by a child. Where there was patterns of fixed animosity. Now there's peace. 
where there was instinctual violence and hatred, now harmony. That's what this guy's gonna do. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain and the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse prophetic language, shall stand as a signal for the peoples and of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious in that day of the Lord, in the day of the Lord, in that day, sorry, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant of the remains of his people. I'm reading this for a reason, stay with me. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, Elam, from Shinar and Hamath, from the coastlands of the sea. That geographical list that was just given amazingly overlays to the geographical list Luke gives in the last chapter, okay? He will raise a signal. So if you were with us last week, you, you know what I'm talking about. He will raise a signal from the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So, so that list that was given remarkably is accurate with the list given in uh, when Luke talks about Pentecost, all the people coming together to the, to the uh, uh, festival. But then there's something else that we need to sit with and think about when we look at Old Testament prophets talking about the coming of Jesus. When Jesus came, did he, by the breath of his lips, kill the wicked? No. No, he didn't. Does the wolf lie down with the lamb now? No. <laughs> no. No, it still happens. Wolf, you put a lamb and a wolf together, it's not gonna end well for one of them, right? The leopard and the goat? No, it doesn't, right? Not if you want the goat to live. No, there's still enmity and violence and fixed patterns of behavior that make for death and bloodshed in the earth. And yet, there are places in me, fixed patterns of behavior that were once full of violence and destruction that have been and are being redeemed by the blood of Christ here and now. Huh? And yet, God did raise this signal for all the people. It was the cross. And he drew all men to it. Just like Jesus said, the Moses would be raised in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be raised up. And all these prophecies now are being interpreted through the lens of Jesus as having come to pass, and yet not having fully come to pass. That's why theologians are gonna call the kingdom the already and the not yet, right? Is it now? Yes. Is it totally? No, right? It's already here, but it's not yet. And it's such an intriguing facet of the Old Testament prophecies that makes it so lively to try to interpret. So awe-inspiring to sit with Old Testament prophecies and say, what is it talking about? Is it talking about Jesus? Yes. Is it talking about the end of days? Yes. Is it talking about his first coming? Or is it talking about his second coming? And I just want to just, I'm just going to sit here just for a second because it's really fascinating to me. When the Old Testament prophets prophesied about stuff like this, Jesus coming, what was happening? And I've heard it explained this way by Mark Rowland. I did not come up with this. They saw a tie-dye kind of dream-like swirl state of the first coming of Jesus and of the second coming of Jesus. And it was all just swirled together in a way that they couldn't distinguish the two. And so when it comes out, did Isaiah know what he was talking about? No, he didn't know the timeline of this. Is it gonna come, did Jesus do that? Yes. Will he do that more? Yes, right? Is this anyone tracking with anyone? Okay, so that really helped me when I sit with some of the Old Testament prophecies. 
because you understand that some of what they're talking about is Jesus coming here and now. Yes, he's doing all that stuff. And some of what they're talking about is when he comes again, the second time, without disguise, in power, and destroys all the wickedness in the earth, right? And it's all swirled together in this one prophecy. Many of the Old Testament are like that. Surely, some of the teachings of the apostles in this early church had that facet, and surely that caused all to be felt amongst all the people, right? The point is that scripture that once probably felt dead and irrelevant to these Jews, right, now seemed alive as it was shown by the apostles to be pointing to Jesus and what he was doing right here and now in their presence. Okay, so it's not just scripture that was coming alive in the early church, right? Relationships themselves began to take a new quality of life um, and fidelity, Relationships themselves had life breathed into them in a new way that hadn't prior. They ate together, they prayed together, they went to the temple together, they broke bread in their homes together. It's redundant if you look at the text. How many times it says together, right? Emphasizing togetherness over and over and over again, unity, harmony. One could argue that unity, camaraderie, togetherness is maybe the most prevalent fruit of the Spirit. Because over and over and over again, here they are doing everything together. The list from Galatians of the fruit of the Spirit would surely point to this, right? Love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What do those all make for? Harmony, peace, unity, togetherness, right? Amongst the family of God. It says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, right? So let's be real clear again. Being devoted to one another is very different than going to a service one hour on a Sunday morning, right? In fact, I'd argue (laughs) you can go to one hour service for your entire life and not be devoted to other people in Christ. It's a very different thing, right? When you go to a service for one hour on a Sunday morning, you know what that's called? Going to service one hour on a Sunday morning, right? It certainly doesn't mean what we're talking about. And look, this this is why I bring this up and make this distinction because I know the climate we're in, okay? Can we chat? I know that we're in a heightened season of fear and anxiety about a contagious disease. Um, And there are plenty of phenomenal and good and practical reasons why people should participate in social distancing right now. Everyone hear me say that? I just want to make sure you heard me say that, all right? Plenty of good reasons, rational reasons. But I'm just going to push just a little bit, okay? And I'm not talking about Sunday morning again. Not talking about going to church. It's not a drive-by guilting of the pastor to go to church. Talking about something else, all right? Being cautious and loving towards people you live with or people that have compromised immune system is one thing. Using the cultural climate as an excuse to why you don't have to invest and encourage other people is another thing. Okay? Can I lovingly say something to you? Don't mistake laziness for love. Some of us don't need a pandemic to (laughs) self-isolate. We don't need, for some of us, it's just been a welcome excuse because we've been annoyed with those people anyway. We chatting? Oh, we're not gonna be honest in church, huh? Okay, yeah. No, some of us need to push back on your hermit crab tendencies anyway and invest in and engage with relational dialogue to encourage and be encouraged. 
before you turn the computer off, okay? <laughs> Not talking about going to church. Talking about being in relationships in which you are known and vulnerable, in which you are approaching to encourage others in the power of Jesus and in the beauty of Jesus. That's what I'm talking about. If you don't have that, I pity you. I feel sorry for you. If you call yourself a Christian and are forfeiting one of the lion's shares of what it means to be a Christian, which is walking the same path with other people who have the same conviction as you. And what is that path? Jesus is powerful and he's beautiful. That's the path we're on. That's what unites the church today and it's what united the church throughout all of history, right? If you're like, like you know, whatever, bro, you know, I, I, you, know I, I, you paid to encourage me, you know? <laughs> I go to church so you can encourage me, okay? You're supposed to do that. I would argue that you've let the consumerism of our age influence your Christianity instead of letting your Christianity influence the conspicuous consumption that is characteristic of our age. If you have thrown out the baby with the bathwater in this season, I just, I want to push back a little bit. When I say baby, the baby is relationships, right? <laughs> right? Um, I just want to push back and, and ask the question, have you taken a consumeristic approach to church? The, the uh, way you kind of can, well, I'll, I'll come back to that. What I'm saying is this. If you aren't continually opening yourself up to Christ-centered relational dialogue via phone, whatever, Zoom, okay, doing that a lot these days, right? To encourage and to be encouraged, to pray, to pray for, to laugh, and to just be together, virtual as it may be, then you're forfeiting one of the most tangible benefits of being a Christian, which is life together with others on the same path as you. Now, listen, I have all sorts of reasons, right? <laughs> I have my own list of reasons why I, I'm not vulnerable or truly known in relationships. Okay, so you wanna know my fave right now? I'm too busy. See that call? Oh, sorry, dude, too busy, right? I'm just too busy right now. Red button, right? My second favorite excuse as to why I don't need to engage and encourage other people is I'm too tired, right? You know what's going on in my house? I've got three little ones, right? So see that red button? Oh, no, no. I'm too emotionally exhausted to engage with someone right now. I'm too emotionally exhausted to be honest, to put forth the effort to listen and to invest. Do I need it? Yes. Am I stressed out of my brain? Yes. Do I need encouragement, right? Get things off my chest? Absolutely, but I'm just too tired, right? And so I'm afraid that many of us, for this whole isolation thing, it's just become a welcome excuse because <laughs> those people are annoying me anyway, right? Let me frame it this way, because that's kind of a negative in your face way to frame it, right? So <laughs> let me frame it this way. This is what I enjoy when I am continually showing up in relationships, right? This is what I'm enjoying. I'm just going to list this out for you. When I fight for honesty and vulnerability, despite my busyness, despite my tiredness, despite self-isolation, right? And I'm showing up on Zoom. I'm showing up on calls. When I'm fighting for this, this is what I enjoy, right? When I can be, I have a couple of dudes in my life that I can be brutally honest with them about my sins and my failures. You know what that means for me? It means I don't have any secrets. It means when someone walks up to me and says, hey, dude, guess what I heard? My heart doesn't, <gasps> what did you hear? All right? Because I don't got any secrets. I just lay it all out to these men that I love and trust, right? 
And I'm profoundly grateful for that, right? Because I know that I'm not hiding. I don't have to spend forth all that energy, right? Waste all that energy trying to hide, right? Trying to remember what lies have I told, right? What do I need to, what do I need to manage my impression? Because I'm, I'm fully known. If you've never experienced what it means to be fully known, you're missing out. To not have any secrets, right? To be known. So not only that, when I fail, when, when I fail, not if, when I fail, I have brothers around me who will pick me up when I have lost the drive to keep going. I have dudes around me who will shoulder it up underneath me and help me continue walking when I've lost the drive to walk, you know? And I'm profoundly grateful for that, right? I know some people point out, man, it's hard to be a Christian. You know what's hard? Suffering alone. That's what's hard, right? What's hard is trudging along, trying to manage all these impressions and lie to people like you got it all together, trying to trudge up the mountain of moral, ethical morality and stuff like that, never being fully known, suffering, thinking you have to hide alone, can't tell anyone what's going on in your real life. That's hard, right? I'm profoundly blessed because I'm fully known and fully loved and have men that will pick me up when I can't walk myself. That's what it looks like for me to be vulnerable and honest in relational Church, not on a service one week on a Sunday morning. This is the last thing. You know what's impossible to do when you close yourself off to relationships? Love other people <laughs> conveniently, right? <laughs> like you can't love your neighbor if you're not engaging with them in some form or facet. And if you think the only person who is benefiting from loving your neighbor as yourself is them, then you've completely lost touch with what Jesus said is better to give than to receive. You've never experienced the reality behind that, Right? It's just as much for us as it is for them. So if our culture didn't already have enough self-isolating tendencies, like we're in the deep end now. I mean, our culture is already isolated in and of itself, you know. I mean, the way our culture is just structured, we have our own little individual houses, drive our own little individual cars, go to our work, we can do everything. We, you can just live your life with never having to correspond with any living person anymore. And like, we're doing, I'm doing that right now, but you know what? Right? Kroger Clicklist, right? Amazon Prime, right? Just get by never having to engage with someone, right? So you can social distance, y'all, which I hope some of you are doing inappropriately, right? You can do that and still be pushing back against the isolating self-sufficiency and subsequent loneliness that is characteristic of our, of our culture, right? I'm, sub, I'm surrounded by men who are committed not only to scripture, but to me as well. And therefore we are united by a path that we are on together, Right? You throw the Holy Spirit in with that recipe and you got a force to be reckoned with in the church. So, y'all, I just talked to Siri, okay. Times like we are in now will always come, okay? There will always be some threat of danger, very real, like a pandemic. It's a very real threat of danger. People are dying, Okay. There always will come things like this or over the horizon, some threat that will cause people to throw off everything considered non-essential for their self-preservation and cause them to flee to a safe, what, what they think is a safe place. Which we, can I, am I say that, did I say that right? <laughs> There's always gonna be things, whether very real, it's not, I'm not talking about this is imaginary, this is real, Okay. There's always going to be things that are going to cause us to throw off non-essentials 
and to run towards what we feel is safe and secure, right? So like a prepper is a good example of that, right? A prepper is continually assessing what is essential and what is non-essential. And all the non-essentials, they're gonna be thrown away and I have all the essentials I need in my uh, underground bunker, okay? So things like this will always come in culture and society. Every age has had its share of things like this. If in that anxiety-filled process, you throw off your devotion to Jesus and your devotion to his people, you have fled from what I'd argue is the most safe and secure place you can be, which is around people that are devoted to scripture and devoted to you. Okay. So how did all these things express themselves communally? Well, a hyper willingness to meet the needs of others what we called glad-hearted generosity. They seem to have an understanding that the church did not exist. What am I talking about when I say church? Relationships. Okay, thank you. All right. They had an understanding that the church did not, relationships, I'm just gonna have to use that word because there's just no way we can get past it, right? That relationships, Christ-centered relationships, Christ-exalting relationships did not exist for them, but they existed for those relationships, right? Which of course, is, is a bit controversial in our day. When we think of what we think of when we say the word church, right? If you don't think this is controversial, like the church existing for you or you existing for the church, just listen to someone talk about whether or not they're gonna go to a church. <laughs> well, I like the worship, but the pastor had a real nasally voice, right? Well, you know, their racquetball court was subpar, you know? Wasn't as nice as that other church, right? The kids' place did have indoor skydiving and laser tag, but, you know, I'm not sure if, you know. And on and on and on and on and on I can go. So if you don't think it's controversial to say that you exist for the church and the church doesn't exist for you, just, <laughs> right? We have a very consumeristic approach when it comes to church. We just need to reckon with it, right? What marked the early church for them was not consumerism, but a hyper-willingness to meet the needs of others. So much so that if a family was going without an essential need, they would sell something they had to give it to that person, right? You need a car? Here, have mine. I can walk to work. I'll only live a mile from it, right? You're struggling to put food on the table? You know what? We don't need five TVs. We'll sell two. You can have food for two months, right? You don't have shoes. Man, you know what? It's fine. I, you, you need shoes. Oh, well, here, I'll sell my computer. It's brand new. I don't even need it anymore. I'm going to get you some shoes, right? Which makes clear, y'all, think about this, that the early church was already breaking social boundaries, primarily boundaries of class and wealth. We had together in this early church the haves and the have-nots. And the haves were saying, this ain't right. And they were voluntarily selling their possessions to meet the needs of others, right? This is maybe one of the most radical characteristics of this crew. And you better believe that glad-hearted generosity was just as controversial and contrasting to their culture back then as it is now, right? They were, y'all, they were Greeks. They were just as narcissistic and self-exalting as we are today. Y'all, the Greeks were the first to suggest that man is the center of the universe, not God, Right? They're just as narcissistic as we are today. And we, we are good students of the Greeks, I would say, right? So now, many have used this passage of Scripture that I read. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing uh, the proceeds to all as any had need, uh, Acts 2.45. Many have used this Scripture to affirm communism, right? And if you do that, you've never read Marx because this is so different than Marx, right? But here, 
Let's just say the big difference, real quick, just for all of you who are thinking, yeah, you know what, I think I'm a communist because I'm pretty sure that just described communism. No, it didn't. Read Marx. Um, The big difference here is the selling of all of their possessions, not all, you know, selling of their possessions was voluntary, okay? Very big difference here, okay? This is not, this is not institutional redistribution of wealth. In fact, If you read the text, the apostles aren't coordinating this at all. This is completely a grassroots, individual by individual, living in glad-hearted generosity to others they see and need, right? So today, (laughs) today, so many church attendees, they see a need, and their first thing is to beeline to the pastor and say, the church should do something, right? Which really means what I hear, pastor, you should do something, or perhaps even worse, the real subconscious transaction we're making is I tithe so you can live out Christianity for me. And yet here, it's the people, not the priests, who are empowered to advance the kingdom of God. And one of the ways it's happening is normal people seeing normal needs, exhibiting supernatural generosity, okay? Y'all, this will always be the marker of the true church. Why? Because the community of Jesus is founded on a man who gave himself freely for us, generously for us, right? Self-sacrifice, even unto death. It's because of the cross that the true church will always exhibit radical generosity. Anyone hear me? No one's gonna say amen after that. Because of the cross that the true church will always exhibit radical generosity, okay? So much so that throughout the ages, people will over and over again forsake everything, their wealth, their home, their family, to go around the world to tell other people about the generosity of God. His Christianity will be marked by the missional movement throughout the ages. You can't refute that historically, right? In fact, cross-cultural missions on the scale of Christianity is wholly unique to Christianity. No other religion has sent as many people as far as we have sent to spread the news of the gospel, right? You're not going to find it in any other religion. No other religion throughout the pages of history have been as passionate about the Christians are about spreading the gospel, uh, the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, right? And nor will they ever possess the same kind of passion the church has had to invite others into the joy they possess by their faith. So there it is. Maybe the most remarkable thing of the early church was their generosity. Maybe it was, but generosity surely isn't as and wasn't as provoking and as startling as miracles, And we see that the early church saturated with them. Many, many signs and wonders, right? All these things that we've talked about so far, devotion to scripture, devotion to each other, radical generosity, right? Are all indicators of the Holy Spirit in community. But the one we have the most trouble with today is signs and wonders. And yet we'll see as we continue through the book of Acts that miracles will open the door over and over and over again for the proclamation of the gospel. And I'd argue that God longs to today in this church, in every church, just like he did now, do the same thing, right? In the next chapter, what we read, a lame man is healed and boom, what we didn't read, captive audience for the gospel. In fact, at the end of that sermon, 5,000 people Y'all, I just got to tell you this. Okay, listen. Uh, This is for next week. I'm just getting ahead of myself. But listen. Okay, so dude's healed. Paul starts preaching, all right? So while he's preaching, pretty sure, yes, it's the next sermon. Oh, Peter, sorry. I get it, see? Paul's not even in the picture yet. Get so excited. Peter's preaching. While dude's preaching, uh, the Pharisees have him arrested mid-sermon. 
So, so it'd be like, it'd be like I'm going on and on and on talking about Jesus. Cops come in the door, flex cuff me, and they're pulling me out. And I'm saying, so if you want to come down, just come down to the front, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing most of you aren't going to be like, yeah, count me in, right? And 5,000 people say yes. That's insane. Dudes being drugged off the stage by cops and people that I won't come too. What, is the, what kind of power does the gospel have when it's proclaimed in the Holy Spirit to the human heart? Unbelievable, right? That's next week, sorry. All right, so. We don't have a time. We don't have time for the full discussion of miracles today, okay? We, we will continue to talk about it, but I'd like to lay before you my conviction that God today longs to seek and save the lost just like he did back then, and we have zero evidence that he intends to use any different means than he used back then today. Does that, does that make sense? Okay, all right, so. In fact... We have ample evidence that Jesus seemed to think that miracles and signs and wonders would be normal for his followers. Two places I'm gonna call your attention to from the words of Jesus. Number one, Matthew 7, 22. When people are coming to him at the end of all of time and saying, pointing at something to prove that they were legit Christians. Right, and this one Jesus says, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. You know that one? Okay, what do they point to? Did we not cast out demons and do many miracles in your name? Because this is showing us something. His followers would do such things, so much so that someone who's trying to pretend they are would point to those things to say, hey, yeah, look, I'm in, I'm in, see, right? Which is, which is made clear here that mighty works would be done in the name of Jesus and that even that is not sufficient evidence of faith in Jesus, according to him, that he would say to them, Despite that fact, I don't know you. So you got to deal with that, <laughs> okay? He's calling out people who see miracles and signs and wonders and yet still don't know him. And, but it would, be, it would permeate the Christians so much that others would point to that as evidence. So there's one, my one, okay? Maybe that's convincing to you. Or how about this one? John 14, 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus speaking, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, greater works than these, because I'm going to the Father, Right? <laughs> So we'd be so much more comfortable, and that, that, that chapter we read, that, that beginning of three, right? We'd be so much more comfortable if Peter and John would have said, hey man, let me buy you lunch, <laughs> you know? Here's $500. Let me meet some practical needs, you know? I'm very, I'm very comfortable with that, right? But the framework that they were working with was no longer what they could do. The framework they were working with was what God could do. And it changed then what they offered to unbelievers. It changed, well, we can't say unbelievers, we can say those outside, okay, yeah. It changed what they offered. Because the baptism of the Holy Spirit, their confidence in God's power had clearly been elevated to include the miraculous now. Can I just say to you, if we do not see God as living and active among us, then we can only offer silver and gold, okay, which is the same thing the world can offer, right? But if we are the new temple, us, if the power and presence of God now meets the earth in his followers, right, if his people are now where heaven and earth meet, like we talked about last week, if we have his spirit, then then and only then can we offer something different than the world offers, okay? The more we sit with this book, the more we will see why the Christian faith spread the way it did 
and became what it has become today. And if you're like, well, Constantine made Christianity what it is today. Okay, what you just talked about, that's how Christianity got hijacked by political powers and was convoluted with, with corruption and politics. I'm talking about how Jesus captures the hearts and imaginations of the human soul with his love. Two very different things, all right? You're talking about how, how Christianity would become a, pol a political force of oppression in history. I'm talking about how Jesus engages with the human heart and soul. Okay, two completely different scales of engagement. What we are seeing in the first couple chapters of Acts is when heaven meets earth in his people and creates a new community out of nothing, right? Not only does it create a new community, you could argue that it creates a new humanity. It's powered by a different power source that has a different scale of values in, in the way they think about the earth, right? So as we sit with this and look at the birth of the church, I want to read to you what I think is a description of what was happening, okay? And you're gonna have to admit it looks very much like what this is talking about and it comes from the Old Testament and it's Ezekiel 37. And I believe that Ezekiel 37 was talking about this moment in history, and therefore we are standing on the shoulders of that moment in history and can partake in the same power this prophecy is talking about. Here we go, ready? Then we'll end. Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Lord, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and will cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound Behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin covered them, and there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath. The word there is ruach, same word we have for spirit. Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, just like the wind they heard in Pentecost, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded to me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel and behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost and we indeed are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord 
when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, said it twice, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in the land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken and that I will do it, declares the Lord. I would argue to you that that is describing exactly what was happening in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And if we will allow the Spirit of God to have his way in us, that's what it looks like. Scenarios that you were convinced were dead, hopes and dreams, relationships, that you were, con- you were pointing at things saying nothing can revive this. I would argue that the Holy Spirit would say, nah, I can revive that. What are you pointing to in your life right now as to why you can't be a person full of joy in life? And I would argue that the Holy Spirit longs to engage you in a way that he breathes life to dead things. Dreams and visions that you would say they will never live again. The Holy Spirit has that kind of power when we say yes to him. Where are you insisting in your life that the bones are dried up and my hope is lost? This is my sense that some of us may feel that way about Christian community right now. For whatever reason, you've become disillusioned and you look at the community of faith like a valley of dry bones. Can I just say to you, number one, that God is in the business of bringing dead things to life. And then number two, there are areas of obedience when it comes to living generously that you need to wrestle with as to what it means to be a Christian. Let's stand and pray.